You obviously know Kung Fu. Hi, this is Perry Young. I play Father June in Cinemax's Warrior, and you are listening to the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Welcome to the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Adjust your speaker box, sit back, relax, and remember, your Kung Fu may be good, but mine is better. Joining me tonight all the way from Cape Town is actor, musician, and shakuhachi flute craftsman. Am I saying that right? You're absolutely saying that right. Excellent. Um, you've seen him as Ping Wu in The Nick and right now playing the fearsome Father June in the Bruce Lee-inspired Cinemax series Warrior, Perry Young. Perry, thank you so much for taking some time out of a busy schedule yeah. to speak with the Kung Fu Driving Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. It's, it's really great to have you. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. You have uh, an interesting background, and I know we're going to have an interesting conversation about some of your influences and uh, inspirations in the industry. So first off, congratulations on Warrior. Uh, renewed for a second season, Father June will be coming back, I assume. Thank you so much. Yes, Father June will be back, and it's a very different side of him. Oh, really? Excellent. Now, I, I'm caught up on the... Uh, the episodes so far and i got to see that father june did break out his shakuhachi flute oh yes <laughs> that's very cool that you got to work that in oh it's amazing it's amazing i mean it, it was not planned in the character you know uh, in real life i am actually a shakuhachi flute craftsman musician teacher um the shakuhachi in case um some of you out there don't know what it is the shakuhachi is a japanese bamboo flute that comes from the zen monks the Komoso monks of Japan. Now, shakuhachi in Japanese means one foot eight inches, and that's the length of the bamboo. So they just decided to call this bamboo one foot eight inches for some reason, <laughs> and it stuck. So the shakuhachi started out as a meditation tool for these monks. It was never meant to be a concert or music instrument, although it has the largest uh, repertoire of music written for the solo flute. And um, it's not meant, again, to be heard with like rhythm and melody and things like that. But there's something very ominous or eerie or provocative about this, the texture and sound of this instrument. And uh, thus, it became very popular in Hollywood films, actually, in the, in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. So you start to hear it in like soundtracks. You hear like this wispy wind or something or this sort of bamboo-y tube sound yeah. yeah and nobody knew what that was for a while so next time you hear it it's the shakuhachi <laughs> <laughs> now it did sound familiar just because i i guess i've equated it with that traditional asian sound right it is a very traditional asian sound and if you were raised in japan you hear it in like samurai films as right. a sort of like an, whenever you see an arrow shooting to the sky you hear this screaming flute sound <laughs> that's probably the shakuhachi yeah all right. Well, uh, in your blog, you mentioned that you wouldn't be in the performing arts if it weren't for a certain Bruce Lee. How did his work resonate with you specifically? Oh, my God. Okay, so, I mean, we'll, we'll have to go back to, like, my childhood for this one, if you don't mind. <laughs> Absolutely. So, growing up as a child, I was born in Oakland, Chinatown, to immigrant Chinese parents, uh, and I was the youngest of three boys. So, a lot of my babysitting was done by Hollywood television, and... <laughs> So, you know, I was I grew up in the era of romantic comedies. I always thought I could be like Rock Hudson or or I could be like Tony Curtis, you know, and I thought I really could be like these guys. But one day, you know, you know, on our weekly trips to San Francisco across the Bay Bridge to uh, have them some afterwards, we'd go to watch uh, movies. And there was this one time at the Sun Sing Theater. I mean, we watch all the latest Hong Kong movies like from Run Run Shog. Uh, golden harvest like shaolin you know movies uh, sure. 18 bronze men and all the all these things um all right nice. fist and then one day we walked into fist of fury and there he was bruce <laughs> lee 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, like that, that beautiful man with that ripped muscle, muscular body is something that I actually thought I could be that. That's what yeah. I want to be. You know, like, you know, Rock Hudson or Tony Curtis. Yeah, they were cool dudes, but like, I was never going to be that. But there he was, Bruce Lee on the celluloid screen in front of me with his muscles rippling and his sweat flying when he kicks. And I just thought that sweat flew out of the celluloid screen and just rained Asian masculinity on us audience <laughs> members, you know? And, and I was this scrawny Chinese American kid walking around downtown Oakland. And, you know, sometimes I'd get my lunch money taken away from me if I, if I straight too far from the border of Chinatown into Broadway or West Oakland, which was a predominantly African-American community. Um, and I'd walk around and, you know, and invariably I'd get picked on and get my money taken. But, you know, once Bruce Lee came around, there was this one time, one particular time when I, there were, I was accosted by three kids and I thought, okay, here goes. I'm just going to get, you know, picked on again. But instead, one of them said, hey, you know that stuff? Show us some of that stuff. <laughs> And that moment, I, I went, Bruce Lee just flashed through my mind. And I went, it's because of Bruce. Now he's going to save my ass right now. And I just went, you know, I just took a horse dance. and went, yeah. And they all went, whoa, yeah, show us something else. Nice. Suddenly, I was cool. Suddenly, I was not this little Asian kid getting picked on. I mean, like, Bruce saved my ass, literally. So from then on, I always knew, wow, here's this guy that just comes out of the screen and like influences my my whole city, not just me, but everyone around me. And and then when when Return of the Dragon came out, and it was like downtown, the Lux Theater, around the block, it was African Americans waiting to get in to see Return of the Dragon, and they were wearing their karate gis, their kung fu outfits. And I went, holy shit, you know, like I didn't know that Chinese and and like Japanese martial arts was suddenly this really you know, like culturally huge thing that was taking over and influencing everybody. And we were suddenly cool. We were not like these immigrants getting picked on anymore. And from that moment on, I went, you know, I, I'm cool. I'm a cool dude, you know. <laughs> I'm not a nerdy Chinese little kid. I'm a cool dude. So in terms of how that, that influenced me going into the performance art, I, I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing today that moment you know and i would say that being here working on a warrior knowing that this is part of bruce lee's creative work it's just it's just mind-boggling yeah you know like how i got here is like literally mind-boggling so what is it like knowing that you're working on a project that was initially conceived by a truly cultural icon like bruce lee i mean beyond martial arts cultural icon where he reached across race, across countries, and was admired and uh, respected by the world, really. Uh, and now you're in involved in a project that is part of his legacy, and you're adding to it. What does that, what does that do to you? How do you, how do you cope with all that? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really mind-boggling because, again, I'm overusing that term mind-boggling because it's like my consciousness has been so just kind of blown away while, I, while I'm here, uh, being here in South Africa, because I just recently met Shannon Lee. And she, you know, she says that um, we had a lunch with the cast and she said her, if her father was alive here watching us, he would be proud. Oh, and like, awesome. yeah, and I just felt a lot of us cast members just got kind of choked up because we're actually like, we've bonded really well because of, I think, because of the legacy because of his, what he had to share with the world and what he meant to so many people. I mean, he was really about righting the wrongs of society. You know, when you watch most of his films, I felt like he was the underdog that had to help, you know, galvanize all the other underdogs to fight the powers to be. And we need that more than ever today. So being on the show, like I have to thank Jonathan Tropper, I mean, Justin Lin, Shannon Lee for bringing this to life because it's like, we need to hear the story now with what's going on in America. The, like racism has never stopped. Political demagoguery, scapegoating immigrants, that, that has never stopped. I mean, banning Muslims or Mexicans, we think that's a new thing. I mean, the Chinese anti-Chinese immigration laws of 1842 prevented 
Asians, Chinese from entering the country. I mean, we were entering the country as as quickly as Europeans. I mean, imagine if they had not stopped Chinese immigration. I mean, you know, there'd be a lot more Asians in this country right now. But because of those laws, racist laws, it really it prevented women from coming into this country. So Chinese men could not start families. There were anti-miscegenation laws to prevent Chinese men from marrying or, or, or just people of color from marrying other other peoples. And but they still found a way, you know, like the Chinese men married uh, Irish, who were also considered the lowest of the, you know, Caucasians. They married African American women. They married Native women. So they found a way, and there were a lot of mixing, you know, which was, which is what sort of the show is sort of about. Also, it's like the mixing of cultures. But what's really like, I feel like it's a privilege to help tell tell Bruce's creative story in wanting to help help mankind. We need to learn. We need to learn from history, and and this story was like let's let's be one. I mean, one of Bruce's quote is like, "We are one family under the sun." So being a part of this his creative uh, story here is like a huge, huge honor. It's a privilege. There is, is a bit of a bit of weight, maybe I would say, yeah. but but I think that because of the fact that that I was cast, so that makes me like. Well, they cast me. That means they like me. <laughs> that means they think I could do this, do the job. I mean, so that gives me, you know, confidence. And when it all comes down to it, as an actor on the set, you're just focusing on doing your work and telling the story as best as you can. So you know that, hey, Jonathan Tropper wrote the story. It's a great script. When I read the scripts, I was like, wow, I really love these characters. Okay, yeah, I see the fight. They're describing the fight. I see all of that. That's great. I don't see the fight in front of me. I only see words. And these words tell an amazing story about, about Bruce's legacy. And because, because of Jonathan and oh, all the other creative people, the, the composers, the, the makeup artists, the um, set designer, the wardrobe. I mean, these people are really at the top of their game. And it's almost like the classic cliche where I just have to walk in and say my lines, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm really thankful and I have to give props to all of the creative team for this. Yeah. Well, how did you get involved with Warrior? Okay. So um, I, I was mostly doing stage and experimental theater for a while. And then, you know, I was auditioning for things. And at that time in the, in the mid mid nineties, early nineties, there was nothing for me. You know, I had long hair. I was just, you know, I had a certain look that would just make me be the Chinatown gangster in, in the, the, you know, the law and order series. Right. Or, um, so those were the only roles available or the, the waiter in a Chinese restaurant. So, um, at that time I just thought, okay, I'm just not going to waste my time with auditioning for TV. There's just nothing for me. And in the theater world, there's actually a much broader uh, range of roles that, that someone like an Asian American could be cast in. So it was more lenient and open to um, cultural, you know, ethnic casting. So about that time, uh, I started getting into theater and then like, wow, I got sidetracked by the Shakuhachi. I heard it in a show, an experimental theater production at La Mama Theater in New York City. And that changed my life. I went to Japan, you know, I got sidetracked. I went to Japan to study the Shakuhachi under a master, Kinya Sogawa. And I, I got a grant, uh, a U.S. Friendship Commission grant to study with this master for six months. And then my firstborn came along then. So I really got sidetracked by life. <laughs> but, um, and I thought, hey, you know, now that I uh, came back to New York City, another child was on the way. My wife is also a performer. And we thought, how are we going to make this work? Uh, she thought, you know, maybe one of us should teach and we get a teaching job, get insurance and all the stuff. And so... So I went, okay, let's do that. This might be the end of my acting career. So packed up our bags. We moved out of New York City. She went to grad school. My partner went to grad school, Maura, beautiful, smart woman. Um, she got her, her master's two years later. And we were lucky enough to come back into New York City to get a job. And the rare job that they offer for teaching in her specialty, which is dance. And so we came back and she's performing and trying to get her tenure and I'm being the stay at home dad and I'm making shakuhachi at home and I'm playing with the kids, you know, and they grow and nine years pass and I'm doing this and I, wow, yeah. And I get my feet in the theater here and there. And I think, you know, 
what am I going to do? You know, like, okay, now the kids are nine, you know, eight or nine years old. And I have a little more space in my head and my, and more got tenured. I'm getting the acting bug again. I'm getting bitten by the acting bug. I'm getting like, but I can't go back to theater because theater doesn't pay, you know? Right. And so I'm like thinking about what, what I'm going to do. I'm still home. I have time. And then I see this open call for Steven Soderbergh's The Nick. And they're looking for Ping Wu, the owner of a opium den and brothel in New York City's Chinatown at the turn of the century. And uh, I thought, you know what? I've never done, haven't done any theater or film. I haven't even thought about it for like 15 years. But I'm going to give this one a shot. So I sent an email. They said, okay, here are the sides. We want you to do a self-tape. And um, I'm looking at it, and I'm going to do the self-tape like, like I normally would as an actor. And I told a friend of mine who's a film actor, and he said, you're going to audition for the Nick. Wait, I'm going to come by and help you. And uh, yeah, it's a really great thing. Bless his heart, Cole Suddeth, a great actor. And if it wasn't for Cole, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be in the you know, film and TV industry now. So he basically helped me fine-tune my theater skills into the lens and said, okay, just talk to the camera. There's no audience here. There's no back of the audience, back of the theater, like, you know, 60 feet away. You don't need to project. Just, just talk to me right here. He had the camera right next to his eyes. And so we did the scene like that a few times, and we sent it in. And so next thing you know, they, they sent me an email saying, we'd like you to come in for a callback. Wow. And I was like, holy shit, what does that mean? <laughs> so I called. I actually, I didn't know what that meant. So I called my friend Cole and I said, Cole, they, they sent me an email. They want me to, they, they want a call back. What is that? And Cole was like, he screamed on the other side of the phone. He was like, Steven Soderbergh wants you to come in for a call back? Holy shit, you know? So he came in again and he had, he tutored me this time. He tutored me for the audition. And, uh, told me some things to think about, you know, to how to think about the lens, work with that, but really be inside yourself and really sort of just think about what you're going to say. And that's almost, that's almost it for the character. You don't even have to talk, just think about it. And uh, I was like, wow, that's so different for the stage. You know, for the stage, you have to like project, use your body and all this stuff. And he's like, that's the opposite of film. Don't do that for the camera. You'll be too big. You'll be overacting for the camera. So I tried to keep that in my head and I went in for the callback. I did the callback. I felt, you know, I guess I felt okay about it. I felt like I underacted. And then I went on vacation, you know, for three days in Maine. And then they called me back and said, you know, Steven Soderbergh wants you. Wow. I was like, holy shit. You know, my <laughs> Maura was like, holy shit. You haven't done anything <laughs> on TV. Wow. And now you booked this TV gig. And uh, I didn't really re realize how big it was until I started, you know, Perform, you know, working on the Nick, and I was like, holy shit, this is, I'm, I'm kind of way over my head, and I'm just learning as I'm going by the seat of my pants, you know? And um, and luckily, Soderbergh was just so cool. He's just like, you're fine. You're just, you're just doing your thing. It's exactly what we want. And um, and I realized that's what TV is. 99% of television and film is perfect casting. Mm. If they cast the right person, you just be who you are, and you're perfect. You almost don't, you know, it's one of those things. Just step up and say your lines. <laughs> <laughs> That's so surprising because you do come off as a very seasoned actor, though, for TV. So, testament to you. Well, thank you. But it took me five years to get from the Nick to Warrior. So, sure. so in, in those five years, I really started watching a lot of TV and analyzing the best actors I thought I could be like, the best roles that were sort of fitting uh, my, my sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, brand. And so I started studying television just from, you know, acting just from watching. Um, I had the stage acting behind me so I could watch, I could sort of adjust and see what I need to adjust. And, you know, but along that way, about, about three years into it, three or four years into it, this was about 2015, I saw a call or, or an announcement on Deadline.com about television in Hollywood. And they announced that Justin Lin it's going to do this, produce this new show, Warrior, based on Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee's writing. And I went, oh, my God, if I can get into a show like that, <laughs> I mean, I w it would be like my dream. It'd be my dream come true. And so this was 2015. I didn't even have a manager or an agent. Wow. You know, 
that just went by. And then 2017 came by and I saw it again. They're auditioning this time. And by this time I've had, a, I have a manager, an agent, and my agent sends me on the call and I went, and which means that they accepted his submission, meaning that they've accepted to look at me for this audition. And it's, I thought, oh my God, they're auditioning internationally for this role. You know, people from all over the world are auditioning for this role. Like, I'm, you know, they're going to give it to me, or at least they're giving me a chance. Anyway, I, uh, you know, I was, I was basically shooting bricks. <laughs> like, this was my dream job. You know, going back to that seven-year-old kid who saw Fist of Fury and said, I can do that. Up to this moment where I'm like, I'm auditioning for Bruce Lee's creative work here, produced by Justin Lin, you know, our our Asian-American hero, uh, <laughs> and his daughter, Shannon Lee, and Jonathan Tromper from one of my ba- favorite shows, Banshee. I was like, how could this be? So, you know, I, I tried to work on the lines. I, I asked my friend Cole, again, to help me, tutor me for this audition, which he did beautifully. And uh, I did the uh, audition, and, you know, the first take was kind of horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Alexa Fogel, the casting director's uh, assistant, said, let's, uh, let's do that one again. They want, drop, just drop what you're doing. They want someone really solid. I said, great. That, that gives me a lot of confidence in this moment. So <laughs> basically, I had to close my eyes for a moment and think back. as like, what does it mean to be here? I'm here now because of Bruce Lee. This is the moment that I have to show why I'm here. Why am I doing this? And then, and then be like water came into my head. It was so bizarre. Be like water. And then I opened my eyes and said, okay, let's do it again. And it's a monologue, which is the hardest kind of auditions to do a monologue. So I did it again. I did the monologue. And she says, very nice. Let's do the next one. And the next one is another monologue. Super hard. (laughs) So I did that, you know, and it was over a holiday, like Labor Day weekend. I knew I wouldn't hear from them for four or five days. I'm just going, oh, my God, this is the biggest audition of my life. And now we're in a holiday and I'm not going to hear from them. I can't even call my agent. And then I'm driving back from our little road trip and I get a phone call from my agent and I couldn't answer it because I was driving. And it just says, TV show, let's talk. And I literally almost like ran off the road. (laughs) I like zoomed up to the nearest rest stop, pulled over with my family. They're like, what's going on? I was like, I got a call from the agent. I think this is it. I called my agent, Ken Park, and he says, warrior, they want you. I was like, we all screamed in my car, in our car on the side of the road. And so like, yeah, that was the moment. That was the moment. That was 2017. I mean, that kind of was a moment that marked a huge, huge validation of my work as an Asian American artist. And I also consider myself somewhat of an activist for Asian American voice. Mm -hmm. And that's why this, this show resonates so deeply because it's a show about social justice. Yeah. So that, that was my way into warrior. That's amazing. And uh, I I guess those monologues were your be the cup moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And uh, I, I know um, you, you have mentioned addressing some of those stereotypes because you have addressed some of that in your stage work. And when I was growing up, it was a little bit different because I grew up on the 70s kung fu movies. So when I was watching t- the, these kung fu films, I was looking at actors that sort of looked like me. I'm Filipino, so I'm Asian. And I had that. I had some of those role models, I guess, to look up to and... My friends were also looking up to these guys. So uh, I didn't think anything of that until later when, I guess, in your experience, you you must have run into some of those uh, roadblocks, uh, as you were talking about before. Uh, There weren't roles for you in TV. What's your sense on how the industry is changing, if at all? Because now you're on Warrior with a predominantly Asian cast, Uh, just a strong cast in general, but a predominantly Asian cast. 
how do you uh, how do you think the industry has changed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's changed dramatically. I remember, uh, you know, one of the first signs was Lost, Daniel Day Kim. And uh, I, w- I used to pound the pavement in New York City with Daniel. We we did readings together. We hung out a bit. And I remember when his children were, were coming and he, and he said, you know, I got to make a living off this thing. I'm going back to school. And he went to NYU and he did his master's. And as soon as he graduated, he moved to L.A. And then I started seeing him in movies and television and then lost. And I was like, oh, my God, Daniel is doing it, you know. And I thought prior to that, there were I don't remember seeing another lead in a network TV show like that, you know, a male, especially an Asian American lead. So I think Daniel helped helped to pave the way a bit to say, you know, Asian men are were capable of being these leads. And in an ensemble, and there was, uh, although they were, he wasn't English speaking, you know, and his, his partner in loss. So there's an Asian American couple, a beautiful couple that can, you know, be in your living room every week. So that helped to change the game. But I must say with the cast of Warrior, I mean, we're kind of a, like an amazingly well put together group because we, we just all seem to like get along really well just i don't know if it's by chance or it's because of bruce's legacy and how we're all sort of holding up here in cape town together and we have no one else really but sure. we, <laughs> we get along really well and the non-asian uh, cast members are super super talented sweet compassionate people i mean we hang out all the time but there is something about the um the asian actors i mean definitely I'm not alone in saying that Bruce Lee, you know, allowed me to be here. Um, and all the other cast members, I mean, Joe Taslam, Jason Tobin, you know, Rich Ting, Dustin Nguyen. I mean, I'm just naming the guys right now, but Olivia Chang and Diane Dawn. I mean, we all owe what we're doing to Bruce Lee. And, and he's been such an inspiration to us and everything we do is sort of like kind of help. He's our standard. So, and the fact that, like, in this show, we're all quite very different people. I mean, we're from America, Canada, Indonesia, Vietnam, Hong Kong, the UK. We're all, we represent this diaspora of Asians. I mean, not, not just Asian Americans, although there is a political international, like, political identity, which Asian being Asian American is a part of, which is just to always fight sort of, like, being the other, always sort of being oppressed in some way by the dominant culture and not recognizing our tradition or our ability or need to actually be also part of the dominant culture. So Bruce Lee recognized that, Shannon recognizes that, Justin Lin certainly recognizes our our plight as actors and how we need better stories to represent the diversity, our diverse communities. So And so again, props to Jonathan Tropper for writing these what can appear to be tropes for this genre he he's giving us so much room to be human i mean you'd have to be blind to not see like the depth of these characters you know you can see that i'm a tong leader and we're martial artists and we are these you know madams and dragon ladies but those are only those are small springboards into like our humanity and, and all the stories we can tell and all our really unique individualness from everywhere we've come. So, again, I think Bruce's vision is living right through Jonathan Tropper's writing. And like when you when you're experiencing Bruce Lee in a film, you're experiencing like the heroic individual we all want to be, whether you're Chinese, white, black, Latino Man or woman. I mean, I think that he speaks to you saying, I want the best for humanity. I'm going to fight for it. And I think you want to join me on that. Yeah. And uh, just to touch on that, Warrior is definitely more complex. A uh, few good guys, plenty of antiheroes. And you're right. There, it, it, there is humanity to all of these characters, despite the brutal situation that they're all coming up in. You know, the, the Tong Wars, not a nice period in history. Everyone is doing what they think they have to to survive. I think they was a, that was a theme in the the very last episode actually, um, and everybody's trying to make their life livable and keep their customs and their cultures intact. What do you bring to Father June uh, in terms of his role in this Tom well, War saga? 
Father June, I think, uh, his backstory is he's fought in the opium wars, wars. So he's fought the British colonialists and in building. And he was a, uh, as soon as he got off the boat in America, he had to be a coolie. He worked on a railroad. He saw the atrocities that the, you know, that the white white folks were committing against the Chinese, forcing them to, you know, blow themselves up in mines and things like that. And so it's like he's a socialist and he's fighting a revolutionary socialist fighting for his people. That's where he comes from in China. And the person that I could look to for that is Malcolm X. Mm. So Malcolm X will take you down without even thinking about it because you've been killing his people. The white man has been lynching his people for hundreds of years. And I'm going to use that pain to take you down. So I think there's in, in his sort of violence, it's a means to an end, which is peace for his people. Right. I mean, he's protecting his people. One of his speeches is the hot way are the strongest tongue in Chinatown to protect our people from the violence of the ducks. I mean, if you look at the history of Chinatowns and Chinese gold mining camps, Chinese were massacred by, by you know, the Irish and, and other folks who were coming in to, to take their claims. And so Father June operates on that, like, we have to fight back. We need the muscle to fight back. And we're not afraid to fight back. So that's, that's his story. But his other side is like, and this is for the good of humanity. One of the things that I really like about this show is that, uh, and I mentioned it to uh, some of your castmates, that as you watch it, you kind of forget that you're watching Asian characters, or at least you stop thinking about them as Asian characters, and they're just characters. Mm. They're just Father June. They're just Young June. They're just Assam. And re without regard to whether or not they're Asian. Because that cast is so strong. You guys are so good at what you do, at humanizing these characters, at bringing them to life. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, thank you. It means a lot to us. Actually, we talk about that as Asian American actors all the time, is that we just want to be seen as regular people. We don't want to, be a, we don't want to appear on the screen and suddenly go, oh, that's a yellow face. That's an Asian right. face. Are they going to behave like this? I mean, you know, so we, we try really hard to, like, bring life the characters that Jonathan wrote on paper. I mean, when I first read the script, I went, wow, I, I really like these characters. I care for them. I care about where they go. And as the scripts were coming in, I was getting more and more into being with them and wanting to know them. And they were like becoming my friends even before we shot anything. So I know that they're there. They exist. And there's a challenge to, to us as individual actors to, to own them and to portray them with honesty, authenticity as who we are. And yes, it's so important to us to just be normal folks. And I think that's that's kind of like what we all want to be. It's like we're you know, if if you look at the scientific breakdown of our DNA, there's only like one percent of it, one percent that makes us different. Right. You know, like ninety-nine percent, we're all the same. So it's, you know, it's amazing that we have this opportunity in Warrior to become regular people. With that in mind, though, uh, and without being preachy or heavy-handed about it, do you always have it kind of in the back of your head that a show like this, with a cast like this, has an opportunity to make an impact on that representation issue? You know, not that it's it's at the forefront of the job because at the end of the day, this is still entertainment. You still have a job to do. You want to act, you want to act well, you want to represent the story, but people watching, you know, Asian Americans like me or younger kids that might be watching are, are seeing this and recognizing that there is something different about this show. And that's because of what you guys bring to the table. Yeah. I mean, so representation is a huge thing. It can be big or it can be small. It's like, it's like even before we saw Daniel Day Kim on Lost, you could see like, you know, I don't know if you remember this commercial in the 70s where this guy, this Asian American couple was uh, in a laundry and they were doing, you know, washing the clothes. And the wife's, you know, it was kind of a cliche and it was kind of bad with stereotypes, but it represented in somewhat 
it had a good side of it in that they they, they were just there to represent. And there was a couple, they spoke perfect English. And uh, the wife asked the husband, how'd you get this clothes so clean? Yeah. And, and you know, Ancient and Chinese secret. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you, you know that commercial or, or you know, I do. it was for Tide, right? So he had to do the laundry and he washed it and he, and he said, Ancient Chinese secret, like a joke on itself. So that was a complicated commercial in some ways because it used a stereotype, but they weren't, they didn't speak in 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 the in the Chinese accent, but the fact that they were there in a commercial for thirty seconds, it stayed with me my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, so like any even a small amount of representation, even if it's an Asian character, sometimes that walks by, you know, like walks by a screen and you go, oh, wow, that background, <laughs> that was an Asian guy in the background. So I'm, I used to see things like that, you know. And that kind of was helpful to see on TV, even just the background. But so that's how small it could be. And now, like, I think with Warrior, this is as big as it could be. It's amazing what we're given to do. And there is a lot of like, you know, we're not I don't think it's preachy at all. I think that there's a lot of fun. I think it's written with a sort of tongue in cheek, fun, entertainment, drama. I mean, it's hard hitting action. There's gore. I mean, it's all about entertainment, but the representation within the genre is then again amazing because we can be these pretty over-the-top characters with also very sensitive sides that are not over-the-top and nuanced. So, so again, it's it's uh, it's a privilege, I think, to just to just to be ourselves in this show without pushing it. And to know that the drama is already written and the direction is written. And if we have fun, that's kind of like all we can ask for. And I think that'll resonate deeply for many of our viewers. On the flip side of that, it's a Bruce Lee project. So if I hear that, I think, oh, man, this is going to be Kung Fu epic. Did you anticipate that that was what you were going to be walking into when you heard that this was a Bruce Lee inspired series? Yeah, you know, like when I first saw the, <laughs> when I first saw the the call, you know, or the announcement of it, you know, I was super excited, you know, because kung fu has gone a long way in terms of the art of um, kung fu and cinema, choreography, wire work, all you know, special effects. It's come such a long way since Bruce Lee, you know, and you know, one thing Bruce Lee has obviously is, is his amazing charisma that I don't know if anybody will ever match. Um, but we can take the entertainment value of the Kung Fu further than he could have at that time, uh, technically, what was available with um, their their technology and, and medium and form. So I thought, wow, what, what could they do? Because you could see some amazing, amazing work these days. So I was excited about that. And in reading the script for Warrior, I saw that there was a lot of lot of descriptive uh, imagery for how the fights were going to take place. And then, then I knew that Jonathan Tropper did his homework. Like, like he knew how to describe fights. He knew how to describe fights with fun, with humor, with drama, with intensity, with danger. So that was fascinating. And I couldn't wait to, to see how that would be played out. But then when I read the drama, the words, the story, I thought, wow, there's also really great intricate woven storylines here. This is going to be an amazing TV show, aside from having probably some really hard-hitting action with very contemporary sort of styles of shooting martial arts. It's going to be a great story. So what more can you ask for? (laughs) Yeah, and that's uh, one of the attractive things about the show is that even though – when I first heard about it, I thought there's going to be some really awesome kung fu in this. It's going to be a martial arts showcase. Uh, when you start getting into the series, the martial arts that is on display isn't gratuitous. It's not just there for the sake of throwing fists around. It all makes sense as part of the story, and it's it's really, really well done. Like you said, it's woven perfectly into the situation so it's not just hey here you go here's another fight uh gorge yourself on this for a little bit and then we'll get back to the story right i think one of the things that bruce lee's what bruce lee brought to kung fu was character like he always had intention and character and it played out in his um choreography as if the choreography continued the story 
So it wasn't just fighting and kicking, but there was humor. There were looks in his eyes. And there were things that says, this is an extension of, of the story of what I want to tell through movement now. Okay, I, I said my words. Now I'm going to do it through the movement and the camera work, which was part of his amazing vision in bringing kung fu movies to the next level. Now, your resume does list stage combat skills, but do you actually have any formal martial arts training yourself? I had a bit when I was a child. Um, I actually studied with Jack Man Wong, or Wong Jack Man. Wow. The, the guy who's known to have fought, challenged Bruce Lee so yeah. that he wouldn't teach Guai Lo Kung Fu anymore in California. Right. So at a time, I was too young. I just remembered. I was probably about, you know, eight or nine. My brothers were studying with him. He came from San Francisco to teach in Oakland's Chinatown. And so we went every Sunday. And I remember some of the older kids, you know, they had the horse dances down, they had the punches down, they had the katas down. But but I just wanted to run around the studio and play, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I would do some of the horse dances and some of the form, you know. But I would run around, and I just remember Jack Man Wong yelling at me, and he was, like, super mean. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I did the kicks. I did some, you know, the push-ups and some of the punching bag stuff. But I never really learned to form until I started watching Bruce Lee movies, really. And then, I, you know, I come out of the theater, and, you know, we would, you know, we jump on top of cars, jumping off cars, screaming, yeah! You know, yeah, we'd make nunchucks. We'd go home and make nunchucks. Of course, and, and learn how to, and we'd watch Enter the Dragon like all day long, every summer, just to copy his moves. You know, so I would say that I did study under Bruce Lee. <laughs> of course, <laughs> to your credit, though, you do showcase some pretty good moves in the Nick and in Warrior. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of that is also from. Um, I have a lot of movement training in college. I. I you know, like I have a fine arts background in college and then I studied uh, dance and into performance art and finally into theater. So I had, you know, like the traditional dance training, like ballet, modern art, uh, modern dance and things like that. And I did a bit of performing in college. So I would say that I knew my body well and I could sort of I could learn choreography and I could learn martial arts, although I didn't practice it. But I did love how it felt, you know, when I was given the choreography or whenever I would sort of mime uh martial arts for things or tai chi which i did a little bit of formal study of tai chi i really love love how that feels in the body you know yeah and i wonder if that's part of my dna you know part of like the ancestors dna going well this goes back for centuries in my blood you know it's like this form of qigong or tai chi that i'm sort of mimicking you know like it's speaking directly to all like my ancestors, I don't know why it feels so good. I mean, putting on boxing gloves didn't feel as good, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or, you know, trying to bust a hip-hop move didn't feel as good, you know? But, uh, yeah, but, you know, doing some side kicks and jumping in the air, kicking, that felt really good. That's cool. All right, uh, on to uh, your other passion, uh, shakuhachi flute craftsmanship. Because you're not just a musician. You actually construct these from pieces yeah. of bamboo, which I think is is magical in and of itself. Being able to play the instrument is is one thing, but to take a, a raw piece of material and craft it into something that creates music, I think is is amazing. How did that whole thing begin for you? Well, making making your own instrument and being able to play it is, I think, is one of the most gratifying, enriching, and empowering things an individual can do. I mean, it's kind of like like another art form, you know. Mm. taking a white piece of paper, a blank piece of paper, and making a, a drawing and being satisfied and, and with that drawing and putting, up, putting it on your wall and knowing that, you know, that makes you happy looking at it every day. I mean, I think that's an incredibly empowering thing that, that everyone should do. But I, um, I first heard the shakuhachi flute when I was in an experimental theater opera production in New York City, directed by Ellen Stewart of La Mama Theater. Uh, it was a remount of Oedipus, the King, and it was an experimental theater production. They had a sort of a, we would call it a world orchestra now. Yuki Yasuji played a lot of things like electric guitar, drums, and the shakuhachi in it. And um, I, I was actually Oedipus. So I one night 
during uh, one of the shows, there's a really quiet moment. And then here comes the sound, this rich, sort of precarious, windy sound that just grew and grew. And you sort of had to open your ears to hear it. And you could feel the whole audience opening up their ears. So like, what is that sound? Like opening up to hear more. And that's the magical thing about the shakuhachi. It's, it caused you to open up your ears to listen to more as opposed to other instruments that play at the audience. The shakuhachi invites the audience to be with the sound. So that kind of blew me away. It's like during the rehearsals, I had, had not even heard the sound. And I think it was, you know, during the heightened state of when you're on stage and performing that you're you're really open. And I noticed it and I went, oh my God, that's such an incredibly powerful sound. It's such a small sound also. So one night after the concert I, or at the show, I went to the orchestra pit and I said, who's playing that flute at this certain part of the show? And Yukio holds up this flute and says, you mean this? The shakuhachi? <laughs> and he had this look in his eyes that says, yeah, you're bitten now, right? <laughs> so I tried to play it, and I couldn't get a sound out of it. It's, it's notoriously, you know, has a reputation to be notoriously difficult. And it's like blowing into like a, a soda bottle. There's no like actual way to make it unless you shape your lips right and you hit the angle right and things just sort of work right. And so I couldn't get a sound out of it. And I said, well, how can I buy one of these things? And this was 1993, before the internet. You couldn't buy a shakuhachi. And he said, well, if you want one, you have to go to Japan. And you have to go with a teacher that you trust. And you have to go to the maker's house. And you have to try all his flutes until the teacher picks a flute for you. And, you know, wow. yeah, at that time, I was just like this young, starving artist. And I went, okay, well, that's, yeah, you know, forget it. I'm never going to play the shakuhachi. <laughs> so it turns out that show, Oedipus, went on tour in the Balkans, went to Greece, Macedonia, Croatia, Slovenia, and we're sitting on the back of the bus, you know, through a, a, like a two-month tour. And I saw Yukio. He was making a shakuhachi at the back of the bus. And I was like, what? You're making these? And he went, well, if I, if I start now, I'll have like 10 years, and it would be a good playing flute in 10 years. Wow. I was like, I know. And I went, okay, so I'm going to learn from you. This is the only way I'm going to get a shakuhachi, right? So when that tour ended, I, we went back to New York City. I went to the flower market, bought some bamboo poles, and I started studying with Yukio. I would measure his instruments, drill the holes where his holes were marked, and I basically learned how to make and play shakuhachi at the same time. And uh, I started studying with Yukio for like two years, and eventually Yukio said, man, these are pretty good flutes. These are flutes that are are better than flutes you'd buy at like a world instrument store. And, wow. Uh, yeah, and he said, if you want to get better, you'd have to go to Japan. So it was at that moment where I was just standing on a street corner in New York City, right in the East Village on Broadway in Houston, thinking, you know, I want to get better, but how am I going to get to Japan? And, you know, like, it's one of those moments where when the student is ready, the teacher will appear thing. <laughs> <laughs> A woman walks up to me and says, Perry, what are you doing? You know, and it turns out it's Veronica Soul, this film director I had worked with uh, years earlier. And, uh, and I told her I was trying to make shakuhachi. And she goes, oh, my God, you know, that's I, I know a grant for you. I know the perfect grant for you. It's called the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission. They give grants to American artists who want to learn something traditional in Japan. So I think you should apply for it. I'll write you a letter of recommendation. And so I did. I applied for it. She wrote the letter of rec, and I got a couple more. And uh, the first time I applied, the, the the foundation sent a letter back saying, we liked your application, but we're full this year. We want you to apply again next year. So next year came around, and I sent in the same application, and they accepted me. So so there I was in Japan studying shakuhachi under Kinjo Sogawa, who's a master of a, a dokyoku style. It's a very earthy zen flute style and that's what that's where i learned how to play like the bamboo flute in sort of the most organic way in the original way of the uh, the komuso monks the monks of emptiness from the temples who um, who played these flute for daily meditation as a tool to sort of rid themselves of their egos it is studying with kenya that um just kind of blew my mind about how different another culture can be living in another world, immersed in another culture of 
trying to learn about another sensibility, an approach to music on a different instrument. It kind of really opened my eyes in terms of how that particular kind of way of, of approaching playing an instrument can be applied to, say, acting, for example. Actually, it's perfect for film and TV as opposed to stage. It's like film and TV, the lens wants to see who you are. The lens already wants, is examining you. So you just want to offer them, you know, a little bit. And then, and then it wants more. And that's how the shakuhachi is, I think. You hear the sound, but you want to hear more as opposed to a live you know, stage audience where they, they need the audience, they need the actor to project at you, which is like a lot of Western music. It's like they need the music to entertain you, to, to be loud coming at you. So that kind of way of hearing music and playing music actually greatly influenced the way that I, I act. Hopefully it makes sense for an American audience. <laughs> it's easy to hear the passion for the instrument when you talk about it. And uh, conversely, I guess it's the same to see your passion for the character when you're playing it, particularly with Father June, because you, you, you embody him so well, I think. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Are, are you going to be continuing the shakuhachi flute uh, musicianship? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know... It was not intended. Father June was not in, the shakuhachi was not intended, or the bamboo flute was not intended to be a part of Father June's character. Now, after we shot two or three episodes of season one, Daniela Woodrow, one of the executive producers with Justin Lin's company, uh, sent me an email and said, "Tell me about the flute." I, you know, so I went, "Oh, she's probably following my Instagrams." You know, there's a lot of flute photos on my Instagram, yeah. and so I said, "You know, the flute—that's a very different part of my performing life. It's like this whole other world of, you know, like you have to calm yourself down. It's it's another sort of meditation, and it really centers you. Whereas acting is like you kind of put yourself out there, and it's, it, you know, like, and uh, sometimes I rarely, I rarely find a way to mix the two. And uh, she said, "Well." Well, what would you do with the flute? Can you show me if you were, if you had some way into the shakuhachi or the bamboo flute with Father June or Warrior, what would it be? And uh, I didn't really know what she was getting at, but I, I I made a recording of a flute. And I thought, you know what? I, I have this you know garage band and I'm going to like make a little beat, a hip beat. And I'm going to play like some Zen music over this hip beat. And so um, I came up with, I thought it sounded pretty cool. And I sent it to Danielle, and uh, immediately she writes back and says, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, she said she was just listening to it as she opened up the email, and her partner in room heard it and said, what is that? What is that? What, what are you playing? That sounds awesome. And so I said, oh, great. You know, that's just something I would do maybe if, if you were interested in me playing shakuhachi or, or flute. And um, she goes, well, let's talk. And... Um, Two weeks later, when I was reading the episode for the ne- you know the next episode, I saw that they had written that Father June was playing a flute in the episode. I went, "Whoa, okay, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect a character to be pay- playing the flute." And so I thought, okay, Father June wouldn't be playing the flute that I played. You know, I played the standard Chakohachi. That character would be playing a shao, a Chinese flute. And so I didn't have a shao with me in Cape Town at the time. But since I was a maker, I knew how to make a shell. So I went out looking for bamboo in Cape Town. I went shopping. I went, you know, I was asking people, does bamboo grow? Does bamboo grow anywhere? Are there groves? Nobody could tell me. But I found a, a garden supplier with bamboo poles uh, fencing. And I went there. And one of the drivers of the production said, what else do you need? I said, well, I need a saw. I need a really good bamboo saw. And he took me to this Japanese shop with Japanese saws in Cape Town, which was amazing. So that way the bamboo wouldn't splinter when you cut it. And then I needed a special drill so that I wouldn't splinter the, the you know, when I drilled the hose. And this one driver, Fred, took me everywhere. He knew where all the crafting shops were. And so I was able to craft a shell, Chinese shell, hybrid. I call it a hybrid shell shakuhachi because the shakuhachi mouthpiece plays better than the shell mouthpiece in terms of more dynamic range and volume. But the holes of the shakuhachi made it a, a, 
a Japanese scale, so I needed to find an old pentatonic scale for the Chinese scale. So I did some research online and found several pentatonic scales that the Chinese would have used at the time. So I made a custom scale on the on the my shell shakuhachi. So it's a very unique flute. I, I just call it the Father June flute, <laughs> and that's the sound that you hear in episode eight. Is the Father June yeah. flute? It's a nice moment uh, because it's it seems like a. Uh, Zen little moment for Father June before the uh, honor fights start kicking in. Yeah, you know, I had a little bit more ideas with uh, Jonathan about about what Father June would be doing when when uh, when the Tongs go to war, and uh, I thought, you know, in his way, he's conjuring up these spirits. You know, it's, it's sort of like a shaman, a, a Taoist shaman calling the ancestors, get calling the spirits to come to help. You know. To enforce the hopway, and that was my thinking behind that scene for Father June. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. <laughs> <laughs> None of it probably comes through in in the actual storyline, but that's okay, right? Uh, but yeah, but it's so, it's so cool to to just have that again, just a little bit of character development that comes kind of out of nowhere, and you're like, these are actual people, and there's actual stories behind them, and that's that that was nice to see. Right, right. A lot of actors go to places where we don't tell anybody what we're thinking or what our what our inspirations or imagery is for what we do because it's sort of a secret. But it gets us there, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. All right, let's uh, let's do a lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> All right. First thing that comes off uh, the top of your head. Ready? Uh huh. Okay. Uh, first question: Father June versus Pingwu. Who wins? Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna have to say Ping Wu wins. Wow! Okay. Only only because Ping Wu is younger. Yeah. Ping Wu is younger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Uh, Would John Wick survive if the Hopway were set on him? Oh, no way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Give me one guilty pleasure movie. Oh God! I'm only gonna say this because I just auditioned for it, and I want to say it. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say it. But there's a part two audition for. But I would say Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, dude. Oh, uh, excellent movie. <laughs> All right. Uh, what song is currently in heavy rotation on your playlist? Oh, man. Uh, shoot. Now I can't even think of the name. It's by a um, – oh, shit, I'm having a brain for it. That's what – if I sing it to you, maybe you know. Because won't you please let me go? These words lie inside. It's an '80s pop song from the. Um, God, I can't. I can't believe I don't. I can't place it, but I, it's it's awesome that I got you to sing on the show. God, I can't believe I can't name that song right. I've been listening to it like, like, like the whole year for inspiration, because um, it's called "Please Let Me Go." Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. We'll go on to the next question. If you remember, we'll we'll come back to it. So. Finish this sentence. If I wasn't acting and I couldn't even spell shakuhachi, I would be uh, making love. <laughs> Not a bad place to be. <laughs> I think I do that with the two of those anyway, in my own way. Fair enough. All right. Uh, next question. In my past life, I was a bamboo flute master. <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> Born again. Nice. Okay, and final question, and it's a trick question, so I hope you get it right. But what is your favorite podcast about kung fu and martial arts movies and TV entertainment? Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So what else is in the pipeline for Perry Young? What else do you have going on? Okay, so in terms of um, the Shakuhachi, I'm working on a project that's going to coincide with the opening of the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, oh, wow. It's going to be, um, takes place uh, on cyber stage over different time zones. So people will be able to log into a website that I'm going to create that's going to show a stage in New York City or a room and a stage in Tokyo where my teacher is. And we're going to show how this bamboo piece of grass can grow from one culture, spread across the world, and create world peace. And that's through the struggle of the individual musicians that will join in over this broadcast that's going to coincide with the Olympics. So it can last for like, you know, two weeks nonstop over multiple time zones from Shakuhachi players all around the world who will join in 
and play a solo from, from remote locations, and they'll show up on the screen on the website, on the webpage. So this song going to take place with animation showing how the bamboo can actually grow and through like change with sort of like different aesthetics of drawings on how like, you know, we can see samurai in, in old uh, Japanese paintings and, and sort of mesh into contemporary day anime, things like that, and Totoro drawings, cartoons, into high art sort of, you know, things to tell our story of how the bamboo has grown from an ancient instrument to a modern instrument helping all these people around the world find world peace in the players in the same way that an Olympic athlete works individually to make, to become the best person she or he can be and then join in in the Olympics to show the world like this human aspiration that we all want to be the best person we can be through making our body work in the best way that it could, you know, work through our individual hard work and training. And, you know, that is similar to what the Shakuhachi player wants to go through in terms of cultivating the mind to be the best mind it could be through through meditative playing at the bamboo flute. So, so that's my next project, and I hope to get it off by 2020 to open with the, the Olympics. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Very cool. So where can uh, our audience follow you and your adventures? Well... You know, they can find me on Instagram under Young Flutes, Y-U-N-G-F-L-U-T-E-S, or I have www.com, you know, Young Flutes. And um, that's my flute site. And basically, it's, I'm in that place where I can't really separate the two. I'm, I'm a flute maker who is an actor. I'm a musician who's an actor. And yeah, that's very cool. And uh, so for everybody listening, those links will be in the show notes if you want to follow along with the flute making or the acting, both of which... Perry Young excels at. Be sure to, to bookmark youngflutes.com or follow him on Instagram also at youngflutes. Perry, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fascinating conversation. Best of luck with Warrior. I think Father June is a great character because of what you bring to him. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what goes on with the entire Hopway Tong in season two and beyond. All right, Jeff. I mean, we're working on season two right now. I think you're going to be blown away. I mean, if you like season one, Whoa, look out, season two. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here with you. First off, a huge thank you to Perry Young for sitting down to chat with me, despite the fact that he was in the middle of shooting Warrior Season 2. Such a fascinating guy, and I have to admit that I was enthralled by his well-honed stage voice. I could listen to him tell stories all night, I think. Second, that haunting, ethereal music you heard at the top of the show, and just now, is a piece composed by Perry himself, entitled Imprisoned. Now, Perry wrote this piece for the custom-built Father June bass flute, which is a hybrid Shao Shakuhachi instrument. And originally, it was going to be used in a scene in Season 2, but ultimately, the scene got cut. Now, there's always hope that we can hear it in Season 3 or beyond, so hang on to that. Follow Perry at youngflutes.com, that's Y-U-N-G-F-L-U-T-E-S.com, or on Instagram and Twitter, at youngflutes, and let him know that you heard him here on the show. And, if you can identify the song that he was singing... Post it in his comments somewhere. No Googling. As for me, you can follow me on all my socials at Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast on Instagram, at Kung Fu Drive-In on Twitter and Facebook, and of course you can email me at kungfudrivein at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, head on over to iTunes and throw the show a five-star rating and maybe a review. Every little bit helps, so thanks in advance. Also, if you're cruising Twitter, go visit my Castaways Indie Podcast buddies at the hashtag Castaways for some more really cool shows. That's going to do it for this episode, so until next time, Poison Clan. Peace. Poison Clan rocks the world. Walk
Bottles in the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's warm We smash the place up with a dragon claws We walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's warm, we smash the place up with a dragon claw. I see the iron fisted monk before the daily prayers Shouting monks on their hands, running down the thousand stairs The fate of Lee Khan, now's in King Yu's hands With the fearless idea roaming over the land Yeah, the little bit soldier is old, otherwise He wants a world of peace because he doesn't want to fight you got the venom mob laying down the law Bruce Lee delivered kicks, guaranteed to great jars Fight for the cars, then pause here, but pause Not again, back kicks will defeat the outlaws Very good, but more don't hit back Yeah, the death jewel's here David D is coming back The Tai Chi master Jetly's even faster Bitch had a little drink Because he is the drunken master Once upon a time in China Rosamund Kwan is real fine But see Maggie show his spine Golden Swallow has arrived Shang-Chi movies Will the hero will survive We've got the brave archer Make his way to the top Of the mountain gonna fight May as well pick the spot Yeah, the sky goes black Cause the vampire's back We've got Lam Ching Ying To kill them all So stand back He plays the black magic On the soul of the sword and our sword will travel until his body's on floors Yeah, Wing Chun Shaolin and Mantis style Yeah, defeat the enemy and watch him run for miles Blood will spill now on the mountain tops When we bring back the soul of the legendary Pops Walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's warm We smash the place up with a dragon claws We walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war, we smash the place up with a dragon claw. See it's a game of death yo, you're facing the big boss It's once upon a time in China counting the TikTok The Shogun assassin slash and blood just drip drop The head kick, neck drop, balance the bone stop Wanna kill Bill, better get the assassins He's got Irma just in yellow but she isn't the dragon but in the tea rooms That's where it'll happen, she got the bodies on the floor When the blood it'll splatter against the walls No fear at all, to kill them all There's always blood spilled when you head into a war Fearless Unleashed The fist of legend that the car jet I'm Bolo Young, yo, I'll always be a beast You rumble in the Bronx, yo, I'm rumbling the streets And it's simple, see the facts are these It's only ever gonna be one Bruce Lee Walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's warm We smash the place up with a dragon claws We walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting